is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nisha. And I'm Melissa. We are very excited to have Dr. Edward Latessa here with us today. Dr. Latessa is a professor of criminal justice at the University of Cincinnati, who has been noted as one of the most innovative people in criminal justice reform. He has published over 150 works in the area of criminal justice, corrections, and juvenile justice, and has co-authored eight different books regarding recidivism, corrections, and the justice system. Dr. Latessa has also directed over 150 funded research programs and assessed over 600 correctional programs throughout the United States. So you're new to the business. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Latessa. We wanted to start off our podcast by discussing your research and evaluations of recidivism reduction programs across the nation. In your past interviews, you've spoken about the importance of understanding and effective programs so that we do not continue to make the same mistakes. Can you give us some examples of recidivism reduction programs that do not work and talk about the reasons that people think they will work? Well, there's a large, long list of programs that, programming types that really are not effective uh, in reducing recidivism. Uh, <clears throat> example would be when we, when we design a program that doesn't really focus on what we call criminogenic needs. There are certain factors that are more important in kind of influencing criminal behavior. So example would be, an uh, easy example might be a scared straight program um, where we try to take kids often who are um, <clears throat> beginning delinquent behavior and scare them into, into changing their behavior. There's really no evidence that these programs are effective. In fact, most of the evidence shows it actually increases recidivism rates because if you think about it, you know, you're taking these kids, you're taking them down to jail or prison. When they come back to school, they're seen as the cool kids. They get a lot of reinforcement from that kind of behavior. Uh, another example for youth would be DARE programs. Um, you know, they're very popular. We do them all over the country, but there really isn't any evidence that they, that they reduce substance use among, uh, among kids. Uh, I have four grown children now, but when my one daughter went through D.A.R.E., she came home and said, Dad, I don't think this program works too well. And I said, why not? And she said, well, I can tell who's going to use drugs by who they hang around with. So I thought, well, that's my girl. And she kind of figured it out pretty quickly there. Um, we have all kinds of programs that make offenders feel good. Um, programs that uh, boot camps, for example, with adult offenders, you know, where we get them in good shape and we teach them how to drill and say yes, sir, and no, sir. Really not targeting any known risk factors. In, in, in fact, some of those programs just, you know, make offenders feel better about themselves. And what our goal is, is to make them feel, you know, is to change how they think, but not make them more narcissistic. Um, other kind of programs that don't work are things like, you know, talk therapy, um, educational-based programs that, you know, for example, drug education, taking a bunch of drug users and educating them about drugs. They know more about drugs than we do. You know, it's not really a, a very bright idea uh, to do those kind of things. Uh, so that's just an example of some things that aren't very effective. So in your opinion, why do we keep choosing these programs that aren't working? Well, I think one is some good intentions. Um, you know, there's a tendency to want to uh, <coughs> help folks. Uh, a lot of people uh, 
wanted want to reach out. They they want to design programs, um, but they really don't have any idea about what it takes to build an effective program. Um, that's one we see often. Or for example, if you had <clears throat> um, Know, found yourself really in art and you loved art and you thought well that's a good way to get people to change their lives let's do an art program for them you know prisons are filled with good artists you know so it's it's that's one another sometimes is quite frankly it's um, it's an easier way you know let let some group come in and, and run some program without really putting in the effort or the money that you need to design a design an effective so that leads into our next question, which is, what does it take to have an effective program? Could you tell us about a certain program that's succeeding right now? Are there trends that seem to work in different programs? Yeah, I think right now the country is in uh, the midst of re-examining um, corrections. Uh, there's a lot of uh, effort around the country to reduce the prison population, to reduce the number of uh, kids that are incarcerated in, in facilities. California is a very good example of that, where they've brought programming back to their institutions. For a while there, they had kind of given up because they were so overcrowded. Uh, <clears throat> there's a number of, of, of elements that go into effective programs. The, the easiest way to describe it would be to focus on what we call the principles of effective intervention. Who should we target with our programs? Research says we should target higher risk people, not lower risk people. Lower risk people don't need uh, our help. Higher risk people do. They're the ones that are likely to continue their behavior. We have to design programs to focus on what we call criminogenic risk factors. These are those areas of somebody's life that's um, correlated with antisocial behavior. So who you hang around with, for example. If you hang around with the wrong people, you're likely to, to pick up that behavior. If you don't have a job, if you don't, you know, uh, if you use substances and drugs, that's a, that's a risk factor. Third, and, and one of the challenges is how do you change somebody's behavior? That's not an easy thing. And if it is, try to change your own behavior, right? It's hard. Uh, but we know that, <clears throat> that we can change behavior, just as if you wanted to lose weight or had some other bad habit, my guess is you'd, you'd, you'd be more successful if you had someone helping you and coaching you and reinforcing you, right? I mean, that's how we do things. So it's no different with people that get in trouble. We want to teach them new ways to behave. We want to reinforce them. We want to let them practice. We want to give them support. Uh, and of course, finally, you have to do it all pretty well. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of effective programs around the country. Um, we've now assessed about 1,000 programs, so it's increased. About 25% of those programs we've looked at uh, are really well-designed and well-implemented. Uh, for example, <clears throat> we've just uh, designed a new program uh, here in Los Angeles for the, for the L.A. County Jail. Um, so we went in, we took two housing units, they identified uh, higher-risk men, we created uh, a cognitive behavioral program, we call it, in which the men go every day, they learn new skills, they practice them, they also go to some vocational training and then when they get out 
we hook them up to uh, what we call influencers. We try to find the people in their lives that want to help them, and then we train them on actually how to help them. So that program has just started, but it's, uh, it's now going through an evaluation, and I fully expect that it will show very good results. What kind of resources does it take to implement a program like that effectively? Well, you do need resources. Obviously, you have to have tr staff that are committed and trained. Uh, it requires curriculum. And so, uh, for example, at the University of Cincinnati, where I am at, we've developed a number of curriculum, what we call cognitive-based curriculum. Uh, we have one for substance abuse, one for sex offenders, one for uh, mentally disordered offenders. Um, these curriculum are, in our case, free, but we have to, you have, to have training. Uh, you really have to have a good assessment process because you have to make sure you're putting the right people in a program. You don't want to put people in a program that, as I said, are low risk. Okay? And, and again, that's not hard to understand. Um, <clears throat> when you put low risk people in with high risk people, right, the learning that occurs is antisocial. So those are the some of the elements. Um, it does take, uh, I think, more than resources. It takes a, a, a commitment and a will to want to do it. Um, we spend a lot of money on things that don't work. And I'm often asked, well, you know, where will we get the money for all this? And my first response is, well, quit spending money on things that don't work. <laughs> so I, I think some, in some cases it's simply shifting resources. Um, but it's also, you know, making sure things are done with fidelity. Uh, a number of years ago, I was asked to go into the California Department of Youth Services and take a look of, at some programming that they do. <clears throat> I sat in on some groups. Uh, I was very impressed with the fidelity of the program. The problem was that was August. The last time the kids had been in group had been April. So for all those months, nothing had been going on because they weren't able to get organized. They weren't able to get the right staff in place. So they asked us to come in and help them implement. And so one of the first things we did was said, you can't cancel classes. That's it. You know, it would be like a professor canceling every other class. You know, how much would you really learn? And so just making some small changes sometimes can really help a program. So... A lot of what you do is researching these uh, programs and then, you know, coming back and telling them like, what they need to be doing differently. Um, what are some pushbacks you faced with that? Uh, and do you ever get frustrated with the fact that, you know, you've got all of this really powerful research, but it's not always translated into action? Well, I'm a, I'm an optimist. I don't, <laughs> I don't get too, for my staff get very frustrated because they're the ones that have to go out often and do the hard work. Uh, there are a lot of barriers. Um, one barrier is staff resistance. Um, it's hard. You just think, as I said, it's hard to change. And so imagine now someone comes in and says, everything you've been doing is wrong, and we're going to do it differently. And uh, I'm going to show you how. Uh, there's staff that resist that. There's staff that don't want to do it. The other problem in corrections, uh, especially in correctional treatment programs, is there tends to be a lot of turnover. Uh, staff will get promoted, move on, go somewhere else, 
And so you constantly have this need to retrain people and, 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 and kind of make sure it's done well. That's a big, big obstacle, one of the biggest obstacles that we run into. Sometimes it's the political will, although less than before. When I first started about 20 years ago or so, there's an agency called the National Institute of Corrections that's a federal agency that's charged with uh, promoting evidence-based practices in corrections. And they would have me and, and some others go around the country and do workshops on what works. And when we first started doing them, there was a lot of resistance. No one believed that we really knew anything. Um, we were kind of in that punishment and punish them smarter kind of mode. Um, but that's really changed over the last few years. Now, we, get, we don't get a lot of pushback uh, from the policy now the challenge is how to do it, how to do it well. It's not what to do. We, we really know what to do. I'm leaving here tomorrow and going to Hartford, and I'm going to testify at, uh, at one of their committees, legislative committees, around you know, what works and what doesn't work. Um, that's not uncommon today, that many states, including some fairly conservative states, uh, are looking at ways to be more effective. So I, I'm optimistic we can overcome most of the barriers. Shifting toward some more personal questions. We're wondering how you figured out that criminal justice was your passion, how you wanted, how you figured out that, that was your career. Um, That's a good question. <laughs> uh, I was born and raised in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, which is an old steel town in Northeast Ohio. Um, I grew up in a, in a fairly tough neighborhood and had a lot of friends that got in trouble. Um, so I always had an understanding of kind of what, you know, what went into that kind of behavior. Uh, I went to Ohio State and I applied to graduate school and I must have checked the box for corrections. I don't really remember doing that. I went into public, public administration or public policy um, and I got a call one day from a professor and he said, I'm your advisor and uh, I'd like to meet with you. So I, I went out and met with him, and he was, uh, he was the head of a big research center at Ohio State um, <clears throat> called the Program for the Study of Crime and Delinquency. And I told him I needed a job, <clears throat> and he said, well, come back and see me in a couple weeks. I went back. I said, I still need a job. And he said, okay, you come to work for me on some projects. We'll see how you do. So I went with, the, with really the intention of kind of getting a, a, a master's degree and going to work for government. But there were some older students that were getting PhDs and they really influenced me and um, so I decided to go on. Um, we did a lot of studies in those days, uh, correctional programs, um, so I really cut my teeth doing research. I'm not an office criminologist, I'm, I'm somebody that really is applied. Um, and so over the years uh, when I got out uh, I spent a year at the uh, University of Alabama in Birmingham and then ended up at the University of Cincinnati. Um, and over the years, my work's really evolved. I, I was a researcher for a long time. Now, um, I, I, we have a big corrections institute at the university. 
Uh, we do work uh, all over the all over the country and in several foreign countries. So I have a staff of ten full-time uh, research associates, probably a dozen doctoral students, about sixty of my former students who work for us around the country. So we've really devoted our work to taking the research and applying it. So, for example, um, we've gone into Washington State, where you're from, uh, redesigned all their prison programs. Um, I'm about to do some work here in California. California uh, has what they call the SHU, which you know as, as uh, segregation. The most famous is Pelican Bay, but you also have a shoe at Corcoran State, you have a shoe at uh, Folsom. And these are used for men that get in trouble when they're in prison. They're locked in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. Um, California is a little unique because it has kept men in those, in those units for many, many, many years. And recently, um, the courts ruled that they're going to have to uh, change their practice. And so they've put a little program in place to try to uh, work with these men. Um, they've asked me to come in and review it. So in a, in a couple weeks, I'm going to go up to Corcoran, which, by the way, is the biggest prison in the free world. Uh, it's right outside of uh, between uh, Bakersfield and Fresno. It uh, has about 13,000 inmates in it. It's a massive facility. Uh, and I'm going to go up and take a look at what they're doing and then give them a report and help them redesign that program. Because the goal is, if you think about it for a minute, if, if I lock you in a cell 23 hours a day, you only get out to do a little exercise, you're fed through your door, um, I have no real indicators to know when your behavior's changed. And so by creating some programming, you're now able to bring these inmates and do some work with them. And now you can see, are they progressing? Have they changed? Are they learning something? And once you feel that they have, now you can put the man back in the general population. And hopefully they'll stay out of trouble. And uh, you reduce not only the cost of that very expensive segregation but you also, uh, it's more humane. Um, and, and in fact, they told me last week when I talked to them that uh, some of the men had been in segregation 20 or 30 years. So if you can imagine being, being in a unit that long without really anyone to communicate. Wow. <laughs> so for you, um, you know, you hear about these like really unethical almost situations. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you how do you deal with that? Like, knowing that there's a, you know solitary confinement mm -hmm. and these sorts of things still very pervasive in our criminal justice system. Well, corrections does a lot of things just because they've always done it that way. And um, when we assess programs, we go out. We have a process for looking at programs. If we uncover uh, unethical or inappropriate behavior, we do report. Uh, but oftentimes, it's simply what corrections has always done. And so part of it is showing them there's another way to do it that's, that's more effective, it's more humane, uh, it's the right thing to do. Um, 
and we've made some progress. Uh, again, California is a good example. They went from 2,100 men in segregation to about 1,000. And so they hope to cut that even more. Uh, if you look at uh, DJJ here in California, at one point, they had 10,000 kids locked up. Uh, they're under 1,000 today. So there's been a lot of, I think, good things happening. Um, there's a long way to go, uh, a long way to go. So we have time uh, for our last question, which is actually the same question that we ask all of our guests. Um, and that question is, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give to college students in defining success for themselves? Well, my work is with offenders, and success for them is staying out of trouble. <laughs> I think I think success um, in life is actually you know finding something you really want to do, love doing, uh, doing it well. Um, I'm not a I've had a lot of jobs in my life, not all of them glamorous, but I always really worked hard at them. I always got some satisfaction, whether I was you know, working in a steel mill or digging ditches or being a busboy in a restaurant. Um, I always you know, kind of went, had a good attitude about work and, and thought it was important. Uh, and no matter what it was, I tried to get something out of it. So I think success is you know, following your heart. Um, it, it, it's not always easy. You don't always start out where you want to be. But uh, I think I think good things come if you do the right thing. And uh, and again, I, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'll outwork most people. So, you know, I, I always believe in, in working hard and, and, and getting things done. Some people work hard and never seem to get anything done. I like to get tasks accomplished and, uh, and move on to the next challenge. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Latessa, for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.